once again. Welcome to Nuance. I'm Mike Scala, joined as always by Jay Carter, also known as Timid, Hip Hop MC in the chair of BLM Tokyo. What's going on, Timid? What's going on? Uh, just emerging from uh, Typhoon 14 out, out here. What's that? So, uh, the 14th Typhoon of the season. Okay. So basically typhoon, typhoon just, hur just hur hurricane, but uh, right. they call it typhoon in the Pacific, so. Right. Um, yeah, yeah was really that? bad? Where you yeah, at? Well, usually they go up, up along the East Coast, but this time they were coming the west where I'm at, but uh, it diverted into the ocean really before it got here. So we just got some wind and rain. It wasn't too bad, but other parts got hit pretty bad. So. Well, I'm glad you're doing well. And we, of course, have a special guest with us this week. As always, we are joined by Bella Matias, who is a Queens community organizer. What's going on, Bella? Hi, how are you guys? Thank you for having me today. Yes, good morning or good evening. <laughs> good evening. So we usually start off with something on the lighter side. And I actually wanted to bring up the fact that I was interviewed by New York One recently about this book that I found cleaning out my mom's house. And I put a post about it on social media, didn't think much of it, just thought it was a cool thing to share, but the news contacted me wanting to do a story. And so they did. And I do find it to be fascinating as a book. This is a book that my great uncle had, my, it was my grandmother's brother, and he had it in school. He signed his name to it from the 1930s. And you can see here the inside cover of it you can see how, I mean, when I went to school, we did something similar where you would sign the name, you know, sign your name and put the date and put the condition of the book. And I found this interesting, but it's from PS 178 in Brooklyn, which is still there. School still exists. And it's a French book, actually. And it's a book of short stories in French. You guys can't really read it probably from here, but I just found it to be so fascinating, kind of like a glimpse into the past, into the 1930s. And people just write in the date, you know, 2133, good condition. Well, imagine that. We think of this as such ancient history, and here it is. Ink still on the page, still here, and it was just in my mom's house randomly because my grandmother had it because it belonged to her, her brother. So, but it's pretty cool. Yeah, it sounds. That sounds pretty. That sounds pretty cool. Too bad you don't read French. I don't read French, but I was kind of looking through it, and because I'm pretty good with Spanish, I picked up on a good deal of it. You know, those Romance languages are pretty similar. That's how I get by with Italian too. Right. Yeah. What's the name of the book? It, it's short stories in French. Uh, let me go to the front. It's uh, Petite Contest de France. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but short stories from France. It's, apparently, it's a classic book, too, because I was Googling it. You know, the news reporter, when she came, she said that she contacted the school and she contacted the Department of Education to ask if there would be any late fees on it. And they said, no, it's an awesome story, but we don't do late fees. Thank goodness, because late fees from 1936 would be pretty substantial, right? Oh, it was a library book? No, no, it was a school book. But no, oh, okay. It said Board of Education, so, you know, it used to be the Board of Education. But it says PS 178 in Brooklyn. But they say we want it back. Give it up. They didn't say that. And if they don't want it back, it'll stay in our family. That's what's up. Now, Jay, I know your mom is into that kind of stuff, right? She does genealogy, and she looks at family history. And, and, you know, does she have any kind of artifacts from the family, from... Old times. Um. Yeah, we've got we've got a lot of different things, and there was a couple of things that um, she's donated to some museums and whatnot. Um, you know, and then we've got things just from my grandfather as well, from the war and from you know 
other types of things. Yeah. So yeah, we've come across a few things. Yeah, it's good to keep stuff like that if you can, or you know, if it's I guess worthwhile donating it to a museum. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So it's good to get that family history. Um and and also not not just the history, but talk to your your relatives while they're alive and get those stories, you know, have mm -hmm. those conversations and whatnot. Um, I know you know, Mike, I did I wrote that book for my grandmother, um, where I secretly interviewed her for, you know, a couple of years about uh, you know, firsts and things in her life before she became my grandmother, you know, like first jobs, boyfriends, um, you know, friends and stuff like that, and took those and transcribed them into uh, a book. You know, it was about 170 pages and, you know, published it and, you know, gave it to her for her birthday. And that type of stuff from her own words, we sent it out a lot of people in the family. So they got to read these stories and, and learn about some of these things. So have those conversations when when they're alive is, is you know, the best thing to do. That's a good point, because I actually never really knew this great uncle. I think he passed 1988 when I was very little, but apparently he served in World War Two. And he was stationed in France. So maybe this French book actually helped him out. The fact that he learned it in school. I think Jay's point is also to, to really kind of talk to them. And not only did you talk to your grandmother, but you took it a step further because you kind of immortalized a portion of her life, right? So like when we take things and translate them into like tangible, uh, you know, pieces of literature and things like that, you kind of really like, I mean, that's going to be like there forever. I mean, not forever, but you know. For, uh, Absolutely. The foreseeable well, I mean, yeah. future. So look at this. Right? I mean, I just I get goosebumps just like looking at this page because this is a glimpse into the past. The ink is still on the page. You know, we yeah. think of the 30s as such a long time ago, and it really is, but here it is. It's almost, you know, alive and well in this book. Right. So yeah, it's 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 good to to pay attention and focus on those types of things and keep those things um those things alive. You know, and it does make that connection like I said, to the past. Um, so and that also informs what's going on today. So, yeah, right. Fine. Well, speaking of what's going on today, we had a bad hurricane in Puerto Rico. I know the power is out. I think on Sunday it went out and we hear that it's not much better now. I know Bella can speak to this a little bit more being Puerto Rican. I know you just got back from Puerto Rico, too. Right. So I what did, are you yeah. Puerto Rico right now? Um, so I have family who lives on the island and I actually have, um, other friends and colleagues of mine who are out there right now. It was completely coincidental for them. You know, they didn't go out there, uh, to, to do hurricane relief. They went out there on a, on a trip and, uh, they got caught up in the hurricane. Um, so they're really trying to put together relief efforts right now. I mean, they're going around to, elderly people's yards and picking up trees and debris that's been knocked over by the, the hurricane. Um, but conditions are really poor right now, unfortunately. There's still no power. I was told earlier this morning, now there's no running water. Um, so that's obviously just adding to the chaos. You know, no running water, it might sound like something minor, but obviously, you know, you can't, you have no plumbing, so no utilizing really the restroom, no showering, no drinking water. Um, so it's it's really bad conditions right now. So no water, no electricity. Typically in Puerto Rico, when there's a blackout, it's not like in New York. In New York, a blackout lasts a couple of hours, maybe a day. In Puerto Rico, it lasts weeks, it can last months. So 
this is really dangerous conditions. You know, it might not sound like anything. Oh, blackout, blackout that lasts that long. You're talking about you can't have any perishable food because right, you're going to spoil in the refrigerator, right? Um, if you don't have a gas stove and you have an electric stove, you can't cook, you cannot prepare any meals. Um, you don't have air conditioning, obviously. You don't have lights. Um, and, you know, that's not terrible, right? Say, you know, in the daytime, but at nighttime, if the situation starts getting really desperate, like Hurricane Maria, we've seen conditions like this for months and months and months. It started getting to a point of desperation where people were going and robbing people's homes because there was no lights. Uh, so you have those kind of dangerous situations. It's just all around uh, a horrible situation that Puerto Rico sees itself in yet again. And it's unfortunate because you would think that knowing that hurricanes are a regular occurrence because it is a tropical island in the Caribbean, that at some point the government would find a way to better prepare for these uh, unfortunate like in eventualities, right? Um, but, you know, that's not really the case. And, you know, Puerto Rico's left to pick up the pieces yet again. And we'll see what happens this time. Obviously, hopefully it's a better situation than Hurricane Maria as far as the response from the government, as far as the response from FEMA. We, had, we lost a lot of lives from Hurricane Maria, unfortunately. Um, you know, Harvard study was 4,645 lives lost. Um, and then probably more than that, uh, you know, in a little bit of the aftermath, it, it's a lot, there's a lot of compounding problems, right? You don't have water, you don't have electricity. Um, so you don't have any, you know, of the necessities. Um, but beyond that, right, you know, people who are on pacemakers or, or need life support machines, what happens to those people when there's no electricity? Like there are hospitals that lost electricity, right? The, the entire island was blacked out. So you have lives lost for that. So it's really, really catastrophic. Like people don't realize how bad a hurricane is in Puerto Rico um, because of the poor infrastructure as far as the electrical grid and, and other things and the water system over there and things like that. So, but hopefully FEMA steps in and hopefully Biden does a better job than Trump. You know, I don't know if he right. will, time, time will tell. Hopefully um, he won't show up throwing paper towels at people. Jeez. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was just like, I mean, that's like insult to injury, obviously, like when people are, are literally dying left and right, you know, to throw paper towels, like that's a solution. That's, it was really, it was really unfortunate to see that. Um, but, you know, like I said, you know, I can just hope that Biden steps up and, you know, I have a lot of friends of mine who were very active when it comes to Puerto Rico. So we try to do like relief efforts. Some of them are there already. Um, others of us are trying to plan trips out there soon to see what we can do. And, um, and even on the larger scale, a lot of us are organizing, trying to see what kind of funding we can get for supplies and things like that to be sent out there. So, you know, we'll be, we'll be working, we'll be working and we'll be praying that's, you know, sounds good. If you need any help from us, just let us know. I'm happy to do supplies or whatever I can. Yeah. I'll, I'll uh, definitely keep you posted. Thank okay. you. Okay. Absolutely. And to your point about, you know, you would think the government would have some sort of a plan in place. Um, I think it's it's going to become even more important because with with climate change and you know we're seeing record um, you know levels of storms and rains and heats and and everything over these past few years. It means it's only going to get worse. So those those things that they need to do to prepare need to happen now, and not just not just Puerto Rico because you know right now was it Mississippi had a, um, you know their water supply is not good. Um, and they were having warnings there where people were, were showing how, you know, this stuff was coming out of the tap and whatnot. And then, of course, you know, we had Flint, you know, years back, which is still, I don't think, completely. Right. Fixed. 
Or look at Sandy, what Sandy did to the Rockaways in South Queens. And years later, still not 100%. And beyond that, we're really not prepared for another weather event of that magnitude. But if if another Sandy came through, it would be just as bad. We haven't really built up our infrastructure to be able to sustain that or withstand that kind of weather. Exactly. And that's at the root of the problem. Right. Everything's predicting that these things are going to become a little bit more of a common occurrence at these levels. And that's, you know, that's something that we really need to get on, especially, you know, you know, Puerto Rico is, is United States, you know, Mississippi, um, all these, I mean, this is United States. We're supposed to be able to, you know, take care of this and put efforts sure. to do something. So. Absolutely. We definitely need to do better. And I really want to talk about the Rockaway Beach line because that came up when we mentioned infrastructure. Um, it's something we've really talked about on the show a lot, how in South Queens, and I use it as an example because we're in South Queens, but really throughout the city, we're so behind the times when it comes to our infrastructure and in particular our transit infrastructure. Why is it, for example, that there is no quick ride from our airport, our international airport, JFK, to the center of our city? Any other city you go to in America, you go from the airport right to the city, you can't do it here. I mean, I see tourists on the A train all the time trying to figure out why it's taking them so long to go to Brooklyn and Sahassel. It's, you know, this is New York City. We're supposed to be more efficient than this, and we're not. And the mayor came out and announced phase one of the Queens Way plan, which would take a small section of these tracks. Now, it is an abandoned rail line, the Rockway Beach line. It's been abandoned since 1962. The land is now owned by New York City. And the mayor is saying he wants to take a part of it and build a linear park similar to the High Line in Manhattan. They call that the Queens Way plan. People have been advocating for that in Forest Hills and some other places. The problem is, even though we're being told that land is being held for transportation, and this isn't the end of the subway plan, we know that the design really doesn't accommodate transit. And in fact, if they build a park, even on one small section of this line, that could block the train from coming through. You can't have the, a park on one line and the train track on the other line. If you're trying to get to, through to Manhattan, what's going to happen to that park? And obviously it becomes much more complicated later on if we're trying to say, well, now we have to take tear up some of this park. I mean, it shouldn't be built uh, in, in an irresponsible way in the first place. And we've called for what we call the Queen's Link, which isn't just trains. No, there's actually room to do both, but it needs to be done in a way that makes sense. In other words, you have to design this in a way that can accommodate both. You can't just put up a park and then, what, years later say, now we want to bring a train, but obviously that's going to interrupt the park. So get it right now. And the problem is that there hasn't been adequate study on this. We just sent a letter signed by 15 elected officials in Queens asking for an EIS on the Queenslink plan that would look at the environmental factors, but not just the environment in from an abstract point of view, but what, how does it affect quality of life? How does it affect local infrastructure? What is the strain on everything from sewage systems to classrooms in, in, in the area? I mean, it just, it just looks at the relevant environmental factors and that hasn't been done. And in fact, the law is that before you make a decision on a project like this, you have to do that environmental study. So that's really what we're asking for, what we've been asking for. Study this better and come up with a better plan that's going to work for everyone and isn't going to be a hindrance on all of us later when we're trying to get transportation done. Because we need better transportation in Queens. We also need park space. But guess what? We do have a lot of park space already. It doesn't mean that we can't use more, but we need to prioritize 
what benefits the most people. And really that is transportation. A study came out that showed 47,000 daily riders would use the line. And that was a conservative number that didn't take into account transfers like other studies did. So if you're benefiting thousands of people, potentially 100,000 people a day, that's something that really shouldn't be taken lightly, especially in this part of the city where we're so transit starved. And so I think we do need to organize the community on this. Some people say we're beating a dead horse. The plan has been announced already. Look, the people need to make their voices heard. If the mayor is going to go against the voices of the people, so be it. But he has to know that the people are against us, especially in our part of the city. That needs to be known. There needs to be political ramifications. There has to be a political fight on this. And I don't think now's the time to be quiet. No, definitely. And um, I think especially coming like when you're coming from far Rockaway, they already have such a difficult commute. And it has so many ramifications in terms of economy. Right. You know, even just job search. Right. Their job search is so limited. Like when you have to have someone commute two and a half hours to get to a job in the city, that's a problem. Right. You're tacking on five hours a day for them to travel to and from work. Um, I had friends who lived in Far Rockaway when I was in high school, um, and that was always such a strain on their life to just make the commute to and from work or to and from school uh, and things of that nature. And so, you know, when people are trying to even just find uh, good employment, you know, if there's not something local in the area of Far Rockaway and they have to commute to the city, you we have to kind of make some sort of contingencies for them as well and take them into consideration and think about the struggles of their daily lives because it definitely has a direct effect on on that and even just what jobs they might even be willing to take right because of that Great what's point. even possible for them to take Great point and Bella you know what people would tell us when we said we need a link to get from Rockaway to Midtown Manhattan, they would say, oh, but studies show most people in Rockaway work downtown. Well, why is that? Because they can't get to Midtown without adding up. Because it's too to much of a commute. Right. It's Yeah, it's too much of a commute. They're commuting two and a half hours to get to Midtown. Who wants to commute two and a half hours? Now they have five hours a day just commuting back and forth, right? I mean, that adds up. Like, that's such a strain. You think about that, an extra five hours a day. If you're working five days a week, you're talking 25 hours a week of your life just sitting on the train. Nobody wants yeah. to do that. So, you know, yeah, most of them, exactly like you said, most of them work downtown. Why? Because they don't want to go to Midtown because it's, in, you it's know, it's it takes thing. too long. Right. The, the commute ferry, is just too strenuous. Right. The ferry goes downtown, which is great, but even that's a pretty long trip. Let's yeah. Be honest. Yeah. Right. But and and it so it might actually preclude them from even seeking out certain jobs. Right. So it takes away opportunities from them or it might not even be possible altogether. Say if you're a parent and you have to be able to drop your kid to school before you get to work, you don't have time to commute two and a half hours. You need something that's maybe an hour commute so you can drop your kid off at eight and be there at nine or even a two hour commute. You drop them off early to breakfast. You know, they have breakfast in the schools. Usually uh, maybe early drop off might be 730. So maybe you have an hour and a half to get to work, but you don't have two and a half hours to get to work. So it, it literally could be a complete obstacle, like a complete barrier from certain jobs from them all together, if you think about it. Yeah. So definitely Far Rockaway needs some advocacy in that uh, in that arena as far as transportation. So definitely I applaud you for taking up the mantle on that and just making that effort um, because it's, it's sorely needed and it's a long time overdue. Yes. And to your point about economic development, 
why is South Queens so behind in economic development? And, and, you know, we can go back and look at how this was done by design. You can look at Robert Moses designing Rockaway and then the parkway system and all that kind of stuff. It's all interconnected. But right. the fact is South Queens is economically stifled by lack of transportation, lack of connectivity. And it only doesn't only affect South Queens. It really affects the whole city. I mean, people getting to the beach, people wanting, just wanting to get around better, not just about leisure, but about the economy. You can start a business. You can go to school other places. You can go to work other places. You can go to restaurants other places. I mean, it just right. opens up the city, which opens up our economy. I think we're losing billions of dollars as a city in revenue by not having this. It, to me, it doesn't make any sense. Why don't we have north-south connectivity? That's really the whole crux of this. We don't have any way to get from South Queens to the north, to, to you know, north right. Queens and towards midtown Manhattan. We got to go all the way around through Brooklyn right now, and it really makes no sense. Honestly, even Howard Beach, even uh, you know Beach Channel, Howard Beach, all of those neighborhoods, it's it's really like a desert when it comes to transportation, like all together. You know, even uh, I grew up mostly in Lindenwood. Um, now I currently live in Woodhaven, but I grew up most of my life in Lindenwood. And the closest train station is like 15 blocks away. Wow. That's insane, right? That's insane. I mean, you're talking almost a mile yeah. from the nearest train station, right? So you've got to take a bus to get to the train station. And, you know, unless you have the, I mean, they have the express bus in Howard Beach. So, you know, it's not that bad, but even that, right? So that for some people might not be accessible because the fare is more expensive and things like that, you know? So those are things yeah. that maybe we could address, like, you know, looking into finding like uh i know they have the fair fares now right so maybe i don't i don't even know if that's applicable to the express buses which is something that's worth looking into as well because south queens it's it's rough commuting from from anywhere in those areas right far rockaway broad channel even howard beach which is a little bit closer in it's still a rough commute you still might be commuting a solid two hours to get to the city unless you unless you're doing the express bus Right. And everyone is talking about car culture, which relying on cars. We need to move away from cars. Well, how can we do that if we don't have an alternative in an area like Howard Beach, for example? Right. We can't right. drive anymore, but we also don't have transportation that we can take in terms of mass transit. So what can we do? We're stuck. You got to walk everywhere. You, you can't. Right. No, just stay in Howard Beach. Don't go anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's what they want. Don't go anywhere. Just stay there. That's it. And actually, yeah. you think about it. Can, it's also fairly dangerous if you think about like a sandy coming through and there being limited ways for people to evacuate you know um that can be a problem as well yeah for sure you look at rockaway it's so narrow really talking about the three blocks width of the whole peninsula for the most part so evacuation is very limited and we saw that during sandy people have a lot of time getting out and then if the a train goes down what do you do right yeah, that's like a natural disaster. Disaster. Okay. You mentioned that the um, you know the um, environmental impact study is required by law to do before uh, undertaking a project, or I guess is that before announcing it or anything? It's before um, making a final decision. So it's before taking any action that would constitute a final decision on the project. Now we're hearing that money was already allocated for this. They're talking about $35 million being used. So we're trying to track down the source of that funding. If it was explicit in the city budget, we haven't found that yet. Maybe it was an amended version. So we're trying to see exactly what was done here, but they did a press conference on Friday announcing it and saying those $35 million for it. So they're pretty far into the process. They are saying they are going to do a study, 
but you should be you should do the study first before making up your mind to do a project like this is there a consequence for for not doing that before making that announcement because it nullifies the decision and so we are you know i don't want to go too deep into it because we are discussing right. our legal options right now we may actually take right. this to court it does nullify the decision but ultimately let's be real this has to be a political decision because no court is going to be able to say there can never be a park or there must be a train that's not for a court to decide the court can right. shoot down the plan as it stands and say it wasn't done the right way go back to the drawing right. board but ultimately the politicians have to decide this our elected officials you know the city owns the land so they have to decide what is done with it and the mta has to weigh in if it's going to be used for transit and in fact it was mentioned in the mta's 20-year assessment plan so it's one of the projects that they're looking at long term but we need the EIS on the train plan as well. I mean, there are steps that need to be taken and I think should be taken as opposed to just announcing we're going to build a park, which will ultimately block the train. So, yeah, stay tuned on that. I think we're going to see more action on this. There's going to be more community involvement and possible legal actions as well. But hopefully the city will come to its senses and say, look, we're going to build part of a park here, but we're going to do it in such a way that allows the train to still run and we're going to give you assurances. This is how it's going to look. We want to see those plans. We want to see that design and we want to see the study. I mean, we, we want concrete actions taken in accordance with the law and in accordance with common sense on this so that we don't lose our train. And Mike, if you need help, you know, in, in terms of organizing the communities, like mobilizing in, in regards to this, please like feel free to reach out to me. I think okay. that you made a lot of great points, and I think that it's really something that needs to be addressed, especially for you know people who are living in Far Rockaway, and 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 not only the people who've been living there a long time, but the youth that's coming up now who are now going to be stepping into the work world and looking for opportunities. It's going to be really tough on them if they don't have you know access to transportation. So please let me know if you need help, and I'm happy. Okay, to help. I will because I think we're going to organize a few different events. We probably won't do one on the tracks, so it'll be more in your neck of the woods. Maybe we could do something together there. Sure, sure, definitely. Um, Jay, do you have anything else you wanted to say on this before we move on to our poll topic? No, I think it's uh, you know you covered it really well. It sounds it's you know. They're moving prematurely, and um, you know, I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, the Daily News actually had a good op-ed about this, and they said that the mayor is doing this because he wants to get stuff done. That's his motto. But it shouldn't just be any stuff; it should be the right stuff. And I do think that it's really incumbent on us, the people, to let him know, let the city know that this is what we demand. I mean, if we're silent about it, we're going to lose because the people who are making the most noise, are, you know, he's going to think he's getting it done for them, and everything is all good. People have to know that there are negative consequences politically and practically. I mean, you're playing with people's lives here. And I don't think a lot of people behind this decision even know that they might only have one side of the story. So it really is on us to tell our side. Right. And like, and I think, I think, like you said, when people are saying, um, you know, oh, it's a lost cause or whatever, um, I, I think your assessment is right that, you know, make him, make him say no in public, make him, you know, confront that in public so that it, that the people can see you know, either way, what it is, but make him stand by that in public if, if he's going to go against it. So, Right. I mean, last year when candidates were running for mayor, I had a meeting with Andrew Yang's people, and I know he came out for the Queen's Way, and we had said publicly, even Catherine Garcia at first was for the Queen's Way project. We had said, listen, Rockaway demands better transit. And so if you want Rockaway's vote, you need to come out for the Rockaway Beach Line, or at least 
work with us on that issue. You can't say we want to turn your train line into a park and the hell with your train. That's not going to work for us here. So it is really on us to let the politicians know that. And the same holds true for the mayor now, you know, let him understand that if he's going to be stubborn on this and say to hell with your train, he's going to lose a lot of votes in the Rockaways in South Queens. And that's just how it is. So you want to say it's a lost cause. It could be a lost cause for him too. But the political ramifications and, and the real life consequences need to be made known. Yeah. So we did mention better transportation and moving away from car culture is what people say. And there was a bill that was introduced in the New York State Senate that would have devices pre-installed on cars to prevent speeding, accessing the car's GPS technology to figure out where the car was, figuring out what the speed limit was in that area, and then physically blocking the car from going too fast. So we put a poll question out last week, asking people if they agreed with this. And Jay, I gotta say, I got it on Facebook for the first time. So I talked about how the way that the social media platforms are set up, Instagram somehow favors those poll videos that we put out. And so I haven't had them on Facebook. So I did use a workaround to get on Facebook this time because I wanted to see how the results might vary between the different platforms. And it is interesting. So my poll result on Facebook was, 14% yes, 86% no. So 86% saying they should not have these devices installed. On Instagram, it was actually closer. 43% yes, 57% no. So that may say something about the different audience that you see on Facebook versus Instagram. Twitter might be a different result entirely. But when you combine them, it was 24% yes, 76 no. So about uh, three quarters of the people were against this. Wow. That's yeah. I mean, we I put it up on on YouTube, and actually within a few hours, there were like uh, you know sixteen hundred uh, views on the on the poll, and um, yeah, everyone said no, it shouldn't, <laughs> it shouldn't be on there. Um, and someone brought up, you know, what we had talked about. They brought up this idea of what you know, what about an emergencies? You know, what, right. what do you do in an emergency? You know, you got to get, especially in, in places like, let's talk about places like maybe in, in the Rockaways where the hospital is a little bit further along, you know, and you need to get a, get to there a little bit faster. You know, and your car is like, well, this is 35 mile an hour zone. You can't go more than 35. Well, you know, that could be dangerous for someone's lives. So, um, yeah, the results there show like people are not having it. And yet it's a bill that was introduced in the state Senate by a very well-respected senator. I mean, this isn't really considered fringe stuff, at least in Manhattan and certain parts of the city, this is looked at as a good thing to do. And like I said last week, really, it just represents another step in that movement to get people out of their cars. But we need something better. You know, you, you can't not give us good transportation good mass transit and take us out of our cars. Not everyone can ride their bike to work. I mean, what do you want? What are we supposed to do here? Right. Now, that, now I did look a little bit further um, into this or just read a little bit on it. Apparently, um, this type of system is not uncommon in Europe. Um, okay. They call them the ISA systems. And from what I, what I read, in, in a lot of cases, they don't at least, at least these, the ones in, in Europe that I, I read about intelligent speed assistance, don't stop you from going faster. 
but it's kind of like it gives you a warning when you're going about to go over the speed limit or going over the speed limit like basically hey you really want to do this type of thing but it doesn't stop the car from. i think the one in new york if i'm not mistaken was to stop you from going too fast right that's what the bill was for yeah so I mean, that's, it's crazy that they want to have that much control over individuals, right, and, and individual choices. And, and then, like you guys have pointed out, in the case of emergencies, um, but also, you know, I don't really understand why they have such a push to stop people from driving. Like, I could understand a push towards electric cars versus gas cars, right, for the environment. But why the push to get people to stop driving? Like, driving is a convenience. Driving is, you know, it's something that helps a lot of people in their day-to-day -day lives like okay a lot of the things that i do i have to be 20 places in a day i could not be all the places that i need to be in a day if i was taking mass transit it just would not be feasible like having a vehicle allows me to do so much more within a day right and then so sometimes it's even a necessity to your work right certain certain careers certain jobs you might need to be here and then 10 minutes later you need to be there and then if you're on the go like i, I don't really see how they could be pushing to remove people's vehicles sometimes it's a necessity to your career um, or to your lifestyle you know whatever business that you operate and so i don't see what's the push for it in the first place push to electric i can understand push to get people to stop driving i don't i don't see why that would make even sense for them it's just to me it doesn't make sense right and the people who are pushing this for the most part don't drive themselves and it's always interesting now because you see a lot of topics politically where you'll have people say well you know if if you, if you aren't this and you shouldn't have a say in it i don't know how serious of an argument that becomes but you, you see that with the abortion issue right they'll say if you're not a woman you shouldn't speak on it you see it now with the gun issue if you don't own guns you shouldn't be making gun laws so i mean you know i think people would maybe make the same point here that if you don't drive you shouldn't legislate on driving we can't obviously our government doesn't work that way right we have a representative democracy where people make decisions and they vote you, you we can't have uh you know only senators who drive can vote on this bill we don't do it that way but i think maybe philosophically or just intellectually is something to that idea like if you don't if you can't relate to this means of transportation if you haven't spent any time in a neighborhood that relies on it how are you really equipped to speak on that and right you have no tangible experience in that right it's so easy it's like, for you to say, I mean, if, if, you know, if you're in Manhattan and you and all your neighbors, everyone, you know, walks and takes the subway and takes a bus and all the stores that need are right there. And, you know, you don't see a need for cars. So it's easy for you to say, maybe you even get political points in your district by saying, let's punish all the drivers in Staten Island or whatever, but right. come here, spend some time here, spend some time in Queens and see what it's like. Um, the same goes the other way also. I mean, I wouldn't want to start making rules about people in Manhattan who don't drive. I mean, with, without having that experience and talking to the people who live there, knowing what they need and what they want. And it's New York City, but New York City is not a monolith. You have to have a different approach based on the neighborhood's needs and based on a district's needs, based on the people. You can't have this approach where you can treat everyone the same way in New York City. It's the biggest city in the country and it's, it's diverse in many ways and that should be celebrated instead of trying to make us all the same, essentially. Well, they want to be polarizing, right? So they want to say, are you for this or you are, are are you against this, right? And here's the thing, like, I could be for something in one neighborhood and against it in another, because it depends on what works for the people who live there, right? So, like, you know, again, it's like you pointed out, these laws would 
probably be okay in Manhattan, but not so much in Staten Island or Queens. But, you know, it goes deeper than that, right? Even with like, for example, housing issues, you know, people will say, oh, are you for, you know, more uh, upward building? Are you for, you know, rezoning for this? Are you for, you know, uh, tenant laws like this and like that? And it, honestly, it depends on the neighborhood, right. right? It depends on what's needed in that neighborhood. Like, so it, it's interesting because a lot of times people want you to just be on one side or the other are you for it or are you against it? And it's really not that black and white. It really depends on the factors of the neighborhood. So, and I think this is kind of like the same situation here where they're not taking into account the other neighborhoods in New York City. And there are many, many other neighborhoods. It's not just Manhattan, so. Exactly right. And we call this show nuanced because these conversations are more nuanced and not black and white. It's always a shade of gray. We always say that. Unfortunately in politics, as you know, the soundbite wins. So everything is very digestible. They want it to be yes or no or nothing. They don't really have room for, well, there's this, but there's also this. This works here, but not there. You know, the, the intellect, right. the nuance, this, the gray area, all of that doesn't play as well in today's world. You know, it's, it's really more of a, t a Twitter world, I guess, where everything's got to be condensed and, and compact. And, you know, they, they don't want to hear you giving a diatribe. But you know what? that's really how policy should work. Policy should be responsive to the needs of all the people. And the situation is often complex. It really isn't black and white. There, there's a lot of shade of gray and that, that needs to be taken into account. It's, you know, it's not a one size fits all type deal. It, it rarely is. It, we, we need to be cognizant of the people's varying needs and come up with plans that work forever. Make the system better for everyone. You can't make the system better for everyone by ignoring such a large portion of the population. That never works. Right, absolutely. And and uh, as you mentioned, like it is nuanced, and there is I can I can see you know why someone would would look at options. Um, I don't think this is a good option, but I can see. I mean, New York is very is pretty much overly congested with with um, car traffic, and there's you know going to have to be some way to deal with that. Um, I don't think this is a way to do it, though. There there have to be other solutions, but yeah. Well. We'll see. I guess this is why it's on us to keep organizing and keep making our voices heard. Otherwise, they can dictate what happens to us. And, Absolutely. You know, and just to go back to the Rockaway Beach Line issue for a second, I saw on social media people saying Rockaway always gets dumped on. Rockaway always gets the short end of the stick. And I think the same really holds true for South Queens on the whole. And we need to do more to organize politically and to become more of a, of a prominent political block whose needs are met. And so the people are in charge and people in power are always gonna ignore us if they feel they safely can. So it really is up to us to make sure that they can't, that we're, you know, we're, we're gonna be a strong enough voice that we can't be ignored. Our needs cannot be ignored because the it will have consequences. It really is on us to make sure that's the case though. Well, you make a great point. And I think we get ignored for so many things, even our schools, right? So like you look at, Ozone Park, Howard Beach, Woodhaven. These are not um, terrible areas. Uh, well, whatever that, for whatever that means, right? Terrible areas. What I guess I would say like what's considered highly impoverished or high crime areas, they're not. But yet the zone schools that we have in these areas are completely failing, right? So you have John Adams, which has had so many violent incidents in the last year, 
Franklin K. Lane, another school with a tremendous amount of violence, violent incidences uh, within the schools. And it's like, why? We have, you know, decent neighborhoods, you know, hardworking people here. People work hard, they buy their homes, you know, they do what they have to do as citizens. And yet the schools that were given as options as far as the zone schools are really subpar. And it's just like, my daughter attends John Adams. And last year they had a stabbing. They had several school lockdowns because of uh, violent incidences or, you know, people being scared, like scared that weapons were brought into the school. And mind you, when there's a school lockdown, learning stops. There's, they do nothing like during the school lockdown. Cause I've asked her, I said, well, what do you do during the lockdown? Like, are you still having your classes? She said, no. So like anytime there's a lockdown, my child is missing out on her classes for that day for several periods. So she might miss out on three, four periods of education because of one of these incidences. And then of course, as a parent, there's the fear that like something could happen to your kid. You know, they literally had a, I think he was 16 or 17 year old boy. He, he was either 16 or 17 stabbed, put in critical condition in the hospital just last year, um, like in the middle of the year, I think it was in the round of May of last year, right? And the first thing as a parent is like, oh my God, was my kid around? Could that have been my kid? And I've tried to reach out to school and, you know, ask them like, you know, what is it they're doing and, you know, about the situation. And they, the thing is they're trying in, in, in all fairness, like they have certain protocol in place, you know, the schools already have metal detectors. They already have the public safety officers there. They have NYPD working with them closely. Um, and it's just still not, I don't know, it's still not coming up with like a solution that's actually like stopping it. And I think that kind of leads to your point, like South Queens gets ignored in so many ways, even as far as like our school system gets ignored and we're kind of just pushed under the rug and like there's nobody really coming up with like concrete solutions for us. Yeah, historically North Queens really has been the power structure for the borough, but we need to change it. I mean, you know, it's it's like that for a reason. It's where more of the money is and you obviously you'll find more political contributions there. It's not a coincidence, but you know, it is what it is, but I think we shouldn't take it lying down. We should, should fight back and do what we can to make a difference here. Definitely. I want to shout out Jeremy in the chat who asks, who does this bill pander to? Who's rooting for this? So he's speaking, I guess, about the car bill. You know, I think it's mostly people who are against driving, but you do see people say that cars speed too much or drivers speed too much in their cars. And then they hit pedestrians and people complain about that. And those are serious problems also. But, you know, right. I think I, I think um, in that regard, if you were to limit physically limit the speed of the cars and it reduces the, the accidents and reduces speeding, um, you probably lose out on some revenue in that regard. Um, so I don't know if, uh, I don't know if I'd say it'd be a, a revenue generator because well, they're speeding, they're getting ticketed, they're getting fined and that's bringing in revenue. If they're not, then you're just not bringing it in. So I don't, I don't think it would be a revenue generator. Unless he means a revenue generator for the particular companies that make these devices. Yeah, but, for the municipality, not for the state or the city, but for the companies who might be pushing the bill. I'm not sure what what he means by that. I think he's just right. questioning basically what is the wisdom in this? Why is this being done? Right. right. I think I think, I think it's think more about control. I think control is a big thing, but also like you know, revenue generator. Clear one was the, the the speed cameras. I think that's clearly a revenue generator type of situation. Um, but control, yeah, control. 
Yeah, it's not a good, it's not a good look. And I think it's about control. They want to be able to track everything and everyone. That's that's what it's pushing for. And uh, you know, I mean, that's really it's a, it's a double-edged sword, right? Some people will say, oh, well, you know, if you have nothing to hide, then it's not a problem. But, you know, you get into this space of like, where is your privacy as an individual and where are your rights to privacy as an individual when your every move is being tracked and monitored? And are people comfortable with that? And are they okay with that? Because you're giving up a lot of your rights and your freedom by doing that. And, and I think that this is a very sneaky way to do it because it seems small and it seems to have like a purpose, right? Well, we're doing it for the safety and and da da da. But you are in, in a sense allowing them to really track your every movement of you and your vehicle at that point. So you're giving up a large portion of your privacy and your freedom and rights of privacy. So it, it could be very much about that rather than anything else and and also not to mention you said uh you know how the the speed cameras is a a revenue generator you know that also like you, as you guys pointed out with these things how it doesn't take into account a fact of emergencies somebody could be speeding because they have an emergency and now they're getting ticketed for that so we really even should be looking at the like ethicalness of those speed cameras as well because there's no judgment call on that exactly exactly that's why we had live people <laughs> law enforcement right. officers making right. that call i mean if you know if they can see it was an emergency hopefully they wouldn't be ticketing you or stopping you for it they should right. see you in addressing your emergency but yeah. last week i mentioned the idea also of someone chasing you i mean what if it is like a domestic violence type situation you have to get away from some maniac driving after you trying to kill you or whatever the case may be you know that's right. also an emergency that needs to be taken into account and you know if you just leave it all to technology obviously you you miss out on on that on those details so I did want to talk about some of the work that you're doing. I know you mentioned you you actually are working on a domestic violence initiative, right? Yes. Um, so I'm actually a survivor of domestic violence myself, unfortunately. Um, you know, I mean, fortunately, I was able to get out of the situation, obviously, but unfortunately that I had to experience that. But it's, it's really not uncommon. I, I don't even think that I know an adult woman who hasn't experienced it at one point in her life, which is sad to say. Um, but anyone that I know personally has shared experiences that they've gone through with me. Uh, recently, um, I don't know if you guys remember last, uh, was it, yeah, I guess it was the last year technically, or is it this year? Um, it's, it's not long ago, probably a few months ago, maybe about six months ago, uh, they had a woman in Ridgewood. She was actually shot and killed by her uh, ex-boyfriend, her neighbor was shot also, in critical condition, thankfully she survived. Um, and when it happened, it created a real buzz, you know, obviously because someone was murdered in broad daylight and her neighbor was injured. So it was a very um, public display of domestic violence, whereas most domestic violence is obviously behind the scenes, very quiet, you know, a lot of times they, it never gets even spoken about and, and people just kind of suffer in silence, unfortunately. Uh, but being that this was very public, it created a lot of conversation. And I was fortunate to connect with a woman named Dorothy. And she is also a survivor of domestic violence. And we kind of just decided we need to do something to push forward um, in the fight against domestic violence and push forward and just kind of doing better by um, anyone who is at risk of being a victim women, children, men, everyone who, you know, possibly could go through it, right? It's not just women. 
you know, children experience domestic violence, men experience domestic violence. Um, so we just want to kind of push forward. And so we put our heads together and thought, you know, well, what can we do? So we decided we're going to kind of sort of do a, a rally in front of the Queens District Attorney's Office. The district attorney has been notified already uh, and is in support of what we're doing. We're really just kind of twofold. We're, we're doing an awareness event, but also we'll be talking to women about what resources there are for them. So we're going to be bringing together a few organizations to present what resources they have available. Um, and it's also going to be about support, right? Because you go through this experience and even after you've gotten out, unfortunately, you're very traumatized majority of the time. You're not coming out of this unscathed. You know, you have a lot of trauma to deal with after this. Um, so we want to make sure we're giving these women ongoing support. So the event, we're going to be doing it October 24th from 5 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. Uh, we're going to have a couple of domestic violence survivors actually speak on their experience of what they went through because we think it's important to bring light to the situation, not to just say that there is domestic violence, but to really share some of the details of the experience so people can realize how serious this is. And also for the other domestic violence survivors to realize you're not alone. It's okay to come out and speak on this because unfortunately, like there's a lot of shame and embarrassment to this too. And I don't think people realize that. Um, situations that I went through, it took me a long time before I would even tell anybody, I mean, long after I was out of the situation, before I was willing to speak about it years later, it took me before I felt comfortable because to me, it was embarrassing that that would happen to me. Um, and a lot of women share the sentiment, you feel embarrassed that, that someone was hitting you, you feel embarrassed that you feel like you look weak and you look, you know, you should be ashamed and, and that you allowed this to happen to you. And, you know, and, and you get those questions too. Why'd you stay? Why were you with him? Right. And, and we shouldn't even be asking those questions to women who have suffered through this. So we really want to make sure that they know they're not alone. Um, after we have some of the domestic violence survivors speak, we're going to have several organizations come out and present, um, do, do some brief presentations about, you know, what's considered domestic violence, what are early warning signs, and then also, you know, resources for the women who are there who are either survivors or might even be going through it right now and we don't know it, but they're there. Um, so we're definitely going to have them. They're just presenting options and resources of what they can do, you know, uh, whether that's, you know, uh, you know, shelter system, whether that's, you know, um, just like a buddy system where they can call someone that's going to check in on them, like whatever resources they have, there are plenty of resources out there for women or men or children who are going through domestic violence, but you know, you have to know where they are. Um, if you don't know where they are, it doesn't do you much good, right? So we want to make sure we're getting that out to them. And then we're going to kind of close it out with um, a couple of things. One, we'll close it out with a candlelight vigil for the actual victims who were lives lost to domestic violence. Um, I think that that's a very healing thing to kind of take a moment to remember and to mourn and to grieve um, and to just pay respect to the severity of what goes on in these situations and how real it can get and how many lives it affects because it's not just the person who was killed, it's their kids, it's their family members, it's their mothers, their fathers, their brothers, sisters, like everyone suffers when something like that happens, unfortunately. Um, so we're going to definitely do that. And then we're going to end it off with actually a sign up where um, people who are there can sign up for a once a month support group. 
uh, that we're going to be spearheading. So we're going to have basically uh, probably a Zoom because I don't I don't think we're going to be doing in person as of yet. Maybe later on, but we're going to be doing uh, private Zoom support groups uh, for the domestic violence survivors that uh, feel like they want to talk about it or they need resources or they just need you know. To, to hear someone else share their story so they can know that they're not alone or or maybe they don't know where to turn and they they need extra you know support of maybe they want someone to go with them to the precinct you know and they don't know who to turn to and they don't have a support system they can be on our um support group and say i need to go to the precinct i don't want to go alone is there someone willing who's, who's willing to go with me i'll go with them Dorothy, I know Dorothy, she's a kick-ass woman. She will go with them to the precinct. She will stop whatever she's doing and make it happen, you know? Um, but these are the things that's needed. Like, I wouldn't want to go to the precinct by myself. I'm not going to go by myself. I need someone to go with me. And I'm a tough cookie, mm -hmm. you know? But it's, it's not easy to take that step. It's scary, you know? Or, you know, maybe you want someone to go with you to the hospital when you had an injury. Whatever it is, like, it's really... These are really heavy issues. They weigh on you heavily. They're not something that people should have to go through alone. And majority of the time people do. So the end of the event will be people being able to sign up for that once a month support group and it'll be ongoing support. And um, and that's really it. And you know, we're gonna do it in front of the Queen's DA office because we wanna really bring light to it and 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 make sure that everything's being done also on the um, you know, law enforcement level to make sure that we're we're putting a stop to this as well. Excellent. And Sorry, I, I know you, there's a lot of info. No, that's great. No, that's no, great information great. and I commend you for doing it. Here's actually an area where we might be able to work together when it comes to the law. I actually was able to draft a bill when I worked in Albany that would provide for a domestic violence client advocate privilege, similar to the attorney client privilege. There's no state law allowing that right now. And so we, we wanna have that to encourage and really incentivize people to speak openly with their advocates. And we got to pass the Senate, but we got to get it past the assembly now. So maybe we can work together on making something like that happen. Absolutely. I mean, I'm all in. Um, we have to do better all around. And even, you know, and, and mind you, I don't think that prison is the end all be all solution either, right? Because not every, first of all, there's different levels of, of domestic violence, right? Not that any level is okay, right? It's not okay to slap someone. But there's also different levels of severity where someone's getting slapped and someone may be getting an arm broken, right? So there's, because of those different levels of varying severity, there's different uh, uh, penalties, right? There's different like legal um, legal penalties for, for the varying levels of severity of the crime, right? Of the violent crime. Uh, if someone, and then there's of course the burden of proof, but I'll get to that in a second. But right, so if someone slaps you, he might not do any time at all, right? And so you went and you pressed charges and he's right back out tomorrow and now you're in more danger than you were to begin with, right? Because now that person is angry. Um, so I think maybe like monitoring programs, right? So the same way how we have ACS for children when they're where they'll come in and do home checks and things like that. Why don't we have a system like that for domestic violence? Where they're coming and checking in periodically to make sure that things are okay. 
because we can't, right. you know, I mean, somebody slaps you, you're not going to lock them up for a year. That's not going to happen, right? They're going to be out tomorrow. But just because they're out tomorrow, I mean, you, you've solved nothing at that point. So why why right. can't we do, you know, a system where people are checking in on you, making sure you're okay periodically? Like we have that system in place for ACS. We should have something like that in place for domestic violence. And, I agree. And just give yeah. them more support, right? As, as much support as you can give them to give them the strength and the means to leave that situation because people well, find themselves and they for, can't get out. I mean, it's hard. Sometimes say you have kids involved, right? Yeah, You have kids, that's the father of your child. You guys live together. It's not so easy to pick up and go. And, you know, if you're coming and doing home visits and making sure that everything's okay, also put the guy in an anger management program, right? Because again, Let's say the woman does leave. She she says, you know what? I'm not putting up with this. He slapped me, but I'm not putting up with this. I'm not going to let it get any further. I'm not going to let it escalate. I'm out of here. What's going to stop him from doing that to the next woman? Right. We're not addressing the problem, right? Like he needs to be in anger management. Something's wrong. What's going on that he feels like it's okay to physically assault someone? Right. Yeah. But I think it all we starts also like, when we raise our children too. Absolutely. Absolutely. It starts from, from, from young, you know, we need to do a better job of talking to our young boys and our young girls. We should have programs in the schools, workshops from early ages, you know, discussing these things. But when you get to that problem, again, you know, you put them in jail from the night, let them out tomorrow. That doesn't solve the problem. And not every domestic violence offense is going to warrant him being locked up for two years. Right. right. So now what do we do with those in-between situations? We say, oh, well, he only slapped you. So now he, it's okay. No, it's not okay. But we can't lock the guy up for two years. So let's get people checking in on you. Let's get him in an anger management program. Let's do things that's going to actually solve the problem. Right. Maybe this anger management program is not only going to help that woman, but they're going to help those two kids whose father he is. Right. right. Like if you don't do that, then like, even if you lock the guy out, now those kids have no father. Why not try to figure out a way to actually solve the problem? You know, you're not solving the problem by either ignoring it or just throwing the person in jail and calling it a day. You know, um, I, and obviously there's men who are, or, or people rather, I should say, because it's not just men. There are people who are dangerous enough where they need to be locked up, right? That they, they could potentially uh, take someone's life. They could potentially seriously injure a person um, that will affect them for the rest of their lives. Okay, that's understandable. But for all the in-betweens, it's still not okay. We still need to do something to address those problems. And again, like even if the woman leaves, you're not solving the problem. If they have kids together, now those kids don't have a father. If he gets with another woman, now he's going to go ahead and abuse that woman. We haven't solved anything. So it's really, you know, there's a lot that needs to be done. So, uh, you know, I'm glad that you're looking into putting um, some legislation together, or I'm sorry, not even looking to, that you've put some legislation forward um, that you're trying to get pushed through. And I would definitely love to work with you on it and maybe even uh, add some things to it because we need to really start to examine how do we solve these problems and what do we do going forward? You know, it's it's not okay to ignore it and it's not okay to just lock people up and then ignore all the in-between. So we really need some, some better uh, right. solutions going forward. Right, for sure. And as we know, it's not only about 
legislating. We can't legislate our way out of every problem. So right. you know, I think what you're doing is very important also. We just need more support. And Absolutely. maybe that looks like programs. Maybe the government can step in and, and give funding for different programs. But I think we just need people to come together and do what they could do, play their role in this and provide that support that people need. So many people desperately need it. But I think something like, I'm sorry, I, I think, one second, I'm sorry. I think something like that can be legislated, though, to a degree, right? Like, we can say that, you know, you have to have, uh, you know, monitoring of the situation after the person is released in the home. We can say that, you know, they have to do anger management. And sometimes, sometimes some judges do require that, but there's a lot of instances where they just consider it too small of a infraction like you know too small of a crime to mandate that and and that's wrong why is it okay for someone to strike me why is it okay for someone to hit me and assault me and to you it's too small for them to have to take anger management right that's it's unacceptable right. there's no reason an individual should feel like they have the right to assault someone else period if you're not in self-defense no and we could also allocate more money for those programs through the budget. I mean, I think that's something we should be working on for sure. Jay, you had a now, point on that? Well, I was just saying we've um, been covering a, a lot in regards to this, the domestic violence, um, was uh, physical violence. Is there anything that addresses any of the psychological and mental abuse that is also a proponent, proponent of um, domestic violence? Well, there's definitely some programs out there for it, but... There could always be, I wouldn't say more, I'm sure there's plenty of programs out there for it, but there can definitely be more um, attention brought to those programs, which is that, that's what part of why we wanna have the, the groups come out and speak on the resources available. You know, it is very traumatic. I mean, and, and it, it's crazy because it's twofold. You have psychological abuse and you have verbal abuse. And then you also have like, just the psychological abuse that comes from being physically abused as well, right? You have fear after that. You have a sense of powerlessness. You have anxiety attacks. You have, and I'm talking from firsthand experience. Like these are things you go through and have to work through and it will take you years to get past it, right? And then of course you have men who will verbally degrade you, you know, call you all types of names, curse at you, this, and that, and you can't even defend yourself because you know if you speak up it's going to become worse and it's so that's a great point and it, you know it's something that's overlooked as well and and I think that you know that's something that even you know unfortunately the law enforcement as far as you know officers and as far as even judges and you know the entire uh court system in dealing with these situations kind of just fails to even take into consideration so i'm thank you for bringing that up because it's really like an ignored part of it right like like something like i said that people will consider small oh he slapped her oh big deal right it is a big deal now i have to feel afraid that if i say the wrong thing i'm gonna get slapped that's i mean that's really psychological abuse and it, it's just really it, it destroys your your um self-esteem it destroys you know just so much of who you are as a person because you're really made to feel powerless and you have to really fight past that <laughs> to to kind of just reclaim who you are so no thank you for bringing that up because I definitely didn't speak on that and and it needs to be spoken on so 
That's why people often will do that, right? They're trying to control you. They're trying to make you feel like nothing so that they can have that power over you. Absolutely. Right. Well, you wanted to mention also a mentorship program that you're working on? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I'm, so it's not, it's not in effect yet, but I'm, I'm working on something uh, for high school students. And I, I kind of, that's what I also wanted to bring into like, you know, like a lot of things that are missing from the high schools right now with all the things that are going on, um, violent issues, failing schools and things like that. I think we're really missing the mark there because again, we have metal detectors in the schools. We have uh, the the safety uh, guards there. We have, so, I'm sorry, the public safety there. They work in conjunction with the NYPD and we're still having all these incidences. So I think what's really missing is just sort of mentorship and guidance. You know, these young adults, because they are young adults, right? We're talking, I'm, I'm really referring mostly to high school students uh, for the mentorship program that I'm working on. They, they really don't have anywhere to turn to as far as, you know, what's their next steps in life. They're trying to find themselves and they have no one to just guide them. They're looking on social media. They're looking on, you know, TV. They're looking on YouTube, Instagram, all these things, right? Um, and so they're just kind of left with, left to their own devices to figure out what to do and what's okay and what's not. And I, I think that these kids, if they're given a positive outlet, um, or, or more so like a path, a positive path that they can take on, that they would definitely thrive and entrench themselves in it. Um, I work with youth a lot on a lot of things that I do, even in, uh, I work you know in politics as well as community organizing. Uh, I work on a lot of campaigns. And for my campaigns, I love to have high school students uh, on board as like canvassers and things like that. Um, and you see, like, when they work with you, they just take on a new light because they have something positive to do. They have a way that they can earn money and a way that they can be involved in something that is, you know, not detrimental to them. And it's just, I've watched so many of these young high school students be so thankful to me for bringing them on board. Like, you hear stories that just kind of make you light up. They're like, oh, this is my first job. And thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm like, oh my God, I gave people their first job. That's so cool, right? So like, you're giving them these new opportunities and to like, see them so excited about it. Like, it makes you feel so amazing because you were able to give someone their first job. You were able to be their first experience working, their first like manager, mentor, boss, whatever and and give them a taste of what it's like and I really take them under my wing because it's their first job so I kind of get to show them the ropes and I you know when they make a mistake or when they mess up I pull them to the side listen you can't do this and blah, blah, blah. you know um and it's just really great to bond with them so the mentorship program I'm trying to bring together is for high school students and we're really looking to help build them up into the next leaders of the community. So it's a program that focuses on civic engagement, um, but also teaches them about electoral politics, and then also does a lot of leadership uh, workshops. Uh, it's really like pulled experiences from my college experiences. So in college, I was in Air Force ROTC, and I was also in uh, Malave Academy. So Malave Academy focuses on civic engagement and politics, and Air Force ROTC is actually training you to be a lieutenant in the Air Force. Um, so having those experiences 
was amazing. And it gave me a lot of the tools that I use today in my life to be a community organizer, to be involved in politics, and just to be a leader in general. And so I kind of took a lot of elements from those two programs and fused them together, um, along with a little bit of just like one-on-one -on -one mentorship added to the mix where we kind of spend time talking to the students as individuals and getting a sense of where they're at and helping them with whatever general needs they have, whether it's providing them resources like SAT prep, resume writing, so on and so forth. We make sure to give them like a general uh, kind of like wealth or like pool of resources. And then we also mold them into to being leaders so that they can be the next uh, city council member, assembly member, or just grassroots organizer, uh, nonprofit startup, whatever they want to do, they can learn it through this and learn how to be the next leaders and have a positive outlet. And, and I think it can be really transformative. So, you know, I just finished putting together the curriculum and proposal and hopefully we'll get into the schools this year, if not this year, next year. But yeah, so that's just the the main, those are my main two things I'm focusing on right now, my domestic violence efforts and my high school mentorship. Um, I'm also on the board of a nonprofit. We, we, we're doing a lot of things with that, uh, but you know, that's another conversation. Well, that's great. Okay. That's how we're gonna get South Queens on the map politically, which is what we need, right? Right. Leaders, becoming leaders, you know, really fostering that part of their imaginations, unlocking that within them, helping them access that quality that they have and collectively we'll all be better off for it and it gives them it gives them you know not only that experience but it gives them a direction and a purpose and it opens their eyes to what's possible for them to do what they can get into and and i think that's really really excellent idea so that's what's up thank you so we should put a poll question out there for the week i guess we could ask about the Queens link and whether people think we should give up on it or fight harder, because that is the debate that you see sometimes. In fact, Jay, you remember Howie Swatch from The Wave, and he used to be the editor of The Wave back, you know, 10 years ago when we met him. He put out an op-ed not long ago, basically saying it was a lost cause, and he commented on my status now saying, you're beating a dead horse. So I respect the guy a lot. In fact, I think he kind of put me on the map politically in endorsing me when I first ran for office. But I disagree with this idea that we should stop fighting. I really, as we talked about earlier, I do think we need to make noise on this issue for better or for worse. We can't just be quiet about it. So maybe that could be the poll question for the week. Do people think we should just give up on it or should we keep fighting? All right, go ahead. All right. So the poll question of the week is, do you believe it's time to wave the white flag on the Queen's link or should we fight harder than ever? See what the people think. I have a feeling people are going to want us to fight on this. And then, you know, the people need to join as well. Um, you know, raise those voices, um, you know, make those calls and, and whatnot, you know. And, and if anything, if the mayor is going to be like, you know what, screw you, you can't have it. Oh, I don't want that to happen. Make him say it. So then when his next election comes up, it's brought back to his face like, hey, well, you, you know, you didn't want to help help the this community out. Um, so. That goes to council members too, who are council members, helping anybody. Yeah. yeah, our vote's going somewhere else because this is what we're this is what we're focused on. This is what we need. This is what's going to be uh, something that makes our lives easier. So. We have one vote already in the chat. Paul Trust saying, "Fight, 
I, I figure Not Paul's going to say that. Definitely. Yeah, Paul's definitely part of the Queens Link organization. has been a tremendous asset for us. So obviously he wants us to fight, but you never know. I mean, some people just might want to give up. They think that the mayor spoke and it's time to move on. It happens. And and when, especially in fights that are, are you know, long fights, uh, some people are like, you know what, maybe it is time to, to, to turn it in. Um, or sometimes other things get in the way and they have to bow out. I've, I've seen that a lot, especially in um, activism and even in, you know, some of these uh, social movements and stuff, you know, sometimes life gets in the way. So, um, you know, it could be, it could, some people could be like, yeah, maybe that's enough already, but. I'm, well, I'm more Paul, energized. Information point than ever. So I don't think Paul's done yet. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely not. And, and you know, I'm more energized than ever on this. And I think, if nothing else, this is a good opportunity to get people paying attention to the issue and fighting on the issue. Maybe people were a little complacent on it, or they right. thought, you know, like you said, life gets in the way. They're doing their thing, but now there's yeah. a sense of urgency that wasn't there before. So maybe this will enable people to speak up and and really make the community's voices heard on it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm Latina and we have a saying, lucha si, entrega no, which means fight on, surrender no. Right. So right. we're always that's in it. it for the good fight, you know, lucha si, entrega no. That's that's right. like a motto. So I'm all in for the fight and I, I applaud you for continuing that. Fight yes, surrender no. I like it. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's what's up, that's what's up. Well, we'd like to give our guest the last word on this. We call it the bottom line. So anything you want to say, anything you want to leave us with, the floor is yours. Bella Matias, what is the bottom line? Oh, I think that was the bottom line. Lucha si entrega no for the whole segment. I think that the fight continues. Excellent. Yes, I think that's good. It applies to really everything that we spoke about. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. Thank you to everyone in the chat. Chris, Sandy, Elizabeth. Carol, Damien, Frank, Lola, Paul, Jeremy, James, as always, uh, Alexa, everyone for tuning in. And of course, you can catch us later on YouTube. We have the replays on there and an audio form wherever podcasts can be heard. That's Apple, Spotify, Amazon, is it? Amazon, all of those places. You um, Google, all, any, anywhere you do your podcasts, it's, it's out there. So um, definitely subscribe download it um if you want to leave some comments hit us up on the youtube channel add your voice to the conversation as well and also uh, like mike i appreciate the uh, bella joining us today Thanks, yes guys. thank Definitely. you guys for having me so much appreciate it of course and we'll catch you all next week bye-bye